nonprofit governance, nonprofit answers, nonprofit board, nonprofit management, nonprofit marketing, nonprofit resources. Welcome to Nonprofit Everything, the podcast where hosts Andy Shurick and Stacy Wedding answer your questions about all things nonprofit. Welcome back, everybody. So I'm really excited to have Margot Walsh, who is the founder of MainWorks, and we'll talk about why that's important in just a second. Margot, would you like to introduce yourself for us? Yes, thank you so much for having me, Andrew. I really am honored and and delighted to be here. Um, In 2010, out of my own recovery from substance use disorder, I was volunteering at the wet shelter, which is considered the alternative to jail. If someone is under the influence but not disorderly, they are carted off to the wet shelter where they can have shelter, be cared for, make sure that they're safe. Um, And it changed my life because I had never really seen that level of um, uh, abuse, frankly, and I'd never seen the um, complexity and myriad social challenges that go along with that level of abuse. Um, and and then by just happenstance, I guess I was feeling quite um, altruistic in those days. I started volunteering also at the Cumberland County Jail Pre-Release Center. And there I discovered the, um, the possibility for what has become MainWorks. And that was here these young guys were sitting in a pre-release employment setting at the jail and yet they were being sent out to these really hopeless, um, low low barrier employment outcomes. And I thought maybe I could find a better job for them so that there could be continuity when they get released, that they could actually step out of prison, jail, it was, um, into a higher paying, more sustainable job, which happened to be the construction industry. So that's how it all started. So thank you for having me. Of course. And yeah, we're excited because this question, as soon as I, as soon as we read the question, I felt like I knew who I wanted to call. So, (laughs) so here's the question we got. We are exploring what it means to have more inclusive hiring practices. Do you have any stories or examples of what this looks like in action or organizations doing this well? And, you know, just to cheat, that's why we called Margo, right? (laughs) Here's an organization doing this well. And to, to sort of tee it up to MainWorks is a for-profit, not a nonprofit. That's correct. Right. So, and you're a certified B Corp, which is also very, very cool. Um, So, so just, just in case folks are thinking that this is a nonprofit thing, just wanted to sort of clarify that right at the outset. But so tell us how, you know, how does MainWorks, um, what's the, like, what was the impetus of it? When, when you, when you decided that this was what you were going to go do, you thought construction, you thought we can get these guys jobs. Um, what immediately my first thought is that, well, you're bringing in someone who's potentially a difficult person to get hired. Like, what was that conversation like with those first employers? Like, what are we going to, what, how did you sell that? So I sold it on my own, um, conviction that as long as these guys, it happened to be all men at the time because the pre-employment setting, uh, the pre-release setting was um, male-oriented, um, that if they were in my care and custody, that they would be, they would have my care and custody during the course of the eight hours that they were at work, and otherwise were still under the care and custody of the Department of Corrections. So that was very easy, frankly, because everyone knew that they were housed and being well cared for and fed and that stuff. Um, and that th- the jobs that I found were really um, only at these 
industrial construction settings where there are a lot of rules and regulations and accountability. You can't just be dropped off at a residential construction site and left to kind of wander on your own. Um, it was there's a lot of accountability. And um, actually, the, the great part of that was there were a lot of opportunities to learn and develop skills that they might not have ever been exposed to before. The reason that I started this company at Mainworks, which is the name of the um, LLC that I run in Maine, which with offices now in New Hampshire and Massachusetts, um, was, was, in, was to break a stereotype, which was felons would not be hired. And so I thought, okay, let's turn that upside down. And I feel like B Corp, I, the ideal of B Corp is um, often quite disruptive, right? So you have to be thinking of things outside of the box and looking at things differently. And a lot of nonprofits have done that um, for, for many, many years. But when you attach a business to it, it expects a business outcome. So you're kind of um, privatizing a public problem which is in this case, um, you know, lack of employment for people with um, criminal histories. And so that was an easy barrier to say, okay, let's over, let's overcome that barrier by providing the um, employment. Um, and then the, the cool thing that happened was that uh, there would be a sense of empathy and camaraderie built among the guys who were in the workforce. So there's an accountability. So automatically I had this great outcome I, and because it, it was unprecedented i didn't know how it would go but there was a lot the um, indicators were people were showing up every day naturally while they were still incarcerated that was fairly easy but even when they got out the big question was would they be able to sustain employment post-incarceration and the answer to that was yes with continued supports and so there there's a perfect example of hiring um, a population that were um, traditionally overlooked and then underneath incarceration in Maine, anyway, is often poverty and drug and alcohol-related behavior. So my theory was, and also in recovery, as I mentioned, that if you take the substances out of the equation, then the individual is less likely to reoffend. So now I've covered two buckets. I've got the um, formerly incarcerated and people in recovery from substance use disorder, and then the tertiary population are those with mental health challenges that all go together. All of those are always interconnected. And so now we're starting to look at some real social change because we're saying, how do we move people from tax burden to taxpayer? Okay, who are the traditional tax burden population and why? And how can we move them into this taxpayer outcome, which is great for the state? I hate, I'm not really wild about saying it that way, but it's <laughs> very obvious to some pla some people. Um, and furthermore, what do they need to be successful? And, the, and um, you really start to look at like, how can you create an environment for success as a private company? And we knew automatically that it was things like, do they need transportation? Have they had their physical well-being checked out within the past year or so, so that we can determine that they're well enough to be at work? So all of those types of things that um, are usually like the role of a traditional case manager we kind of internalize that to say, and what do you need and what do you need? And so with every time we said that, we thought we're creating a rationale now for an associated nonprofit that could swim along with us and do those things. Because up until that point, which was seven years in, I was handing that money out the door, like bus passes, bus fare, new boots, all that stuff. I was just paying for 
which really um, eroded our profitability. Um, <laughs> and so the nonprofit naturally was able to say, okay, now that Maine Works has legs and has, has a proof of concept, how can we offset those expenses? And so the 501c3 nonprofit Maine Recovery Fund was established in 2017 to provide that kind of case management that I mentioned in a, in a more holistic way, as well as transportation to, to, again, take away the barriers that would preclude this population from being able to maintain employment. So Maine Works is the company and Maine Recovery Fund is the 501c3, but we're in the process right now of rebranding the nonprofit to be called United Recovery Fund to reflect our regional expansion and aspirations for broader expansion. Yeah, that makes sense. I can see where that would be a challenge. As soon as you expand to Massachusetts, you're no longer in Maine, correct? That's right. Although <laughs> yeah. Maine Works, the company is still going to, has brand recognition enough, like Arizona iced tea, that we're going <laughs> to keep Maine Works. There you go. That makes sense. So if you were thinking to, so the the idea of using folks that are um, difficult to employ in in typical typical positions because there are barriers and you look at that as a potential workforce a potential labor force and and nonprofits very specifically have difficulty hiring and we talk to nonprofits all the time that just say there just aren't enough people that are willing to do what we need them to do do you think there's broad applicability to what you're doing to other kinds of things that aren't aren't construction or or really like well controlled situations. So could a could a nonprofit just pick this up and go with it? So bear in mind that everyone that works at Mainworks now in our corporate entity have the same lived experience. So I took a further risk on people based on their merit, not their resume. So for example, the director of operations right now is 23 and has only been sober for two years and he runs the whole business. So, you know, that that position has been filled by other people in the past. And it's really, again, it becomes intensively discretionary and merit based. So it's not about um, so. So taking risks on people, I think, has become a hallmark of these days when the labor market is so compromised to begin with. So I really think that if you have um, have expressed an interest in hiring people for any type of position, that in your organization's ethos, that you start to be more intentional about looking at every single person as a potential hire or conversion from one job to a different job. Because I think that's one of the mistakes that um, most employers make is that they become so enamored with the merit of the individual in that particular function that they can um, not even uh, can contemplate the idea of moving that person internally because then they'll leave their current role and responsibility unmet. But I think there needs to be a constant reevaluation of staff and are your people deployed to their highest benefit and interest because that's where you get retention is when even if you can't pay people, because all of a sudden during COVID, there was this Oklahoma land grab idea of I'm just going to go out and find a new job. There's so many jobs out there and everybody, everybody will get paid more and more. But in the end, and you can always come back to this, that people have to feel connected to what they're doing and enjoy where they're working. So I think that to me is um, advice to continue to mine your internal population for 
your lateral or, you know, whatever positions might be open. It should be a constant reflection. You should never expect that people are happy where they are for as, you know, for that long runway. Always be asking, what would you like to do? And you have to accept what they might say. I love that. And some of the the challenges too, one of the things we talk about for nonprofits too, is a lot of the folks that are really good at that work are doing it because they love it. They're in, they're, they're working for in food insecurity because they like doing that. Um, and so that makes a lot of sense that you can move folks around if they've already got that sort of internal direction that that's what they want to do. Moving them around internally is probably a really good way to continue to hire. And then how would you go about like trying to, I mean, you're never going to convince somebody, I don't think, who's just not thinking about this already. But but the, I remember back to my, when I'm sort of in charge of HR, one of the challenges we always had is that you would, the first step you do is you put together the job description for something you want to hire for. And it inevitably comes with a bunch of barriers to entry. You have to have a, you have to have graduated from college with a particular degree and you have to be working in this exact role for three years. How do you unpry HR from that mindset by fully reevaluating the merit of each of those claims, really, because you'd be surprised how people will become more flexible in the presence of a really fantastic personality that might not have all of those. So um, it's unlikely that they will have adhered to all of that across the board for every hire. Very like, very often you'll find exceptions, of course. And of course, there are necessary um, credentials. And I, I fully support and agree with credentials. So if if it requires an MSW, you know, then unless the bigger system changes, it still requires an MSW. But beyond that, when you and I can't believe I run a company now that no one has a college degree who's in the management which is shocking because I, I recruited for investment banking where college degree was the minimum requirement requirement. Right. So I, I think it is, um, you know, when you have a huge company that's had, again, remember Andrew, that all of these companies protocols were developed over years, you know, decades usually. And so if you have a behemoth, like one of the big, you know, nonprofits that um, we all know, I won't name names, but they just have so much built in and so much built into those um, structures that um, I don't think it takes much to topple that. I I really think you can start to uh, challenge that because, and it takes a challenger. It takes someone who's willing to step in and say, you know, let's review all of these uh, job descriptions and see whether they really have value today in this job market. I mean, you have to be more savvy. There's no time for all that bureaucracy anymore. No one has, and this next generation coming up, I just uh, spoke at um, this affluent private high school, um, which is like the best academic setting in the country. And I presented at their assembly. And afterwards, all of these students came up. They were so invigorated by social enterprise. They're not going to adhere to any of that. No way. We'll have to throw all of those ranks and structures right out the window because this upcoming group are not going to be interested in conforming to that level. No way. Yeah. That, yeah. We, I've seen that too. It's like the, the your newer generation that's coming in is not interested in playing by the existing rules. They want the new rules. 
which yeah. is cool, I think. Yeah, I think it's cool too. So we had, it's funny, we had a question that came into the podcast not that long ago too, was um, should I should I go back to school to get my master's degree in nonprofit management? Is that going to do more for me to work, to get that, to get higher in the ranks of nonprofits? And, you know, the answer was, well, you know, you have to think about what it's buying you. Like, what what are you going to get from that? Is it information that you need? Or are you just really interested in having more letters after your name? Are you thinking that's going to get you in the door faster? And I can see where some some organizations that might, it might get you past that first screening round where it's a pile of, you know, 700 resumes that were all called from something on LinkedIn or something. And then they just have to sort them into piles. And so that's the, how they do that initial sort. So, so in imagining a world where we're, we're talking about people on their merits and not necessarily on like what their resume, what, what a computer, how a computer can sort their resume like, how do we get through that first stage? How do we go from 700 resumes to like people you actually want to hire? Um, I think that I look at it from the resume submitter, the person who submits that resume, how do they differentiate themselves? And I think that um, uh, for me, rather than relying on that pile of resumes for open positions, I think it has to do with the further up the river networking constantly. So it's not going to surprise you all of a sudden that you're going to be looking for someone with these credentials. So I think as a HR person, you should be looking for those credentials long before the need arises. You should have, I think it's now the kind of modern HR person's responsibility to know everyone. And that's easy, easily done these days. And also to be attending things like this, like listening to your podcast and because uh, it's available 24 seven, you can, you know, keep yourself current and, and that kind of curiosity about like delving in to figure out, you know, um, and you should know as an HR person what the landscape is at your company, where you might need people eventually and be constantly taking inventory of that. There's nothing worse than ending up needing to fill a job at flat footed. That shouldn't happen. That's a, yeah, that's interesting. It's funny. You like when you say things and they're just obvious, right? <laughs> because <laughs> well, because that's that seems to happen all the time, especially in nonprofits. Somebody gets a different job, they move on, and all of a sudden you need a director of development. And so you're you're scrambling because there's, you know, you don't think that anybody currently in the organization is is grown up enough to take on that role. And that's a tough role to fill just in general. Like there aren't that many seasoned fundraisers out there, right? So it's, you're right. You do need to constantly just have that bench strength and then to know the landscape so that you can bring somebody in. So, wow, that's, yeah, it sounds obvious when you say it out loud. I haven't looked at a resume since I, since probably 20 years, because again, it's not the way things go anymore. It's just, it's all like LinkedIn uh, or other social media or, your connections, like when I, I don't mean to digress and maybe this is too much of a digression, but I was working for an investment banking firm. They hired me to, to help them recruit. And I thought, why am I here at your company going to hire an executive search person when everybody at this company already knows all of their classmates from Harvard, all of their classmates from, you know, UCLA, I shouldn't be paying a search firm to come in and do this. Let's mine this internally and figure out, give me the names of the people. And as a consultant, I could do that because then I could make the phone call and say, I'm calling on behalf of, you know, John Smith, who gave me your name as a classmate of his from Princeton. That's how it's done. It's all about, in my opinion, anyway, it has way more to do with 
because then you're hiring, you're more likely to hire in their likeness. If that's the kind of, if, if, if this guy recommend John Smith recommended people, then I can rest assured that John Smith has already done some of that vetting in his own mind. And that works for diversity as well. You know, if you're hiring people who are coming from a diverse background of whatever it might be, then there's a chance that they will have fraternized in some capacity with other people that they might think would be a good fit for this organization. So it's, I think it's more disingenuous to go outside and start saying we're hiring for a director of Jedi and then have your Jedi guy thinking, why are you going outside to do that? I know five guys that I'd recommend, you know, make sure you're asking internally first and it's not, shouldn't feel threatening. It should feel empowering. That's, and that, that's interesting too, because it, it kind of brings it back to B Corp stuff too, is that you want your company to be so, you want the folks that work at your company to be so into it that they want people they know to come work for you too. Like it's, it's such a good place to go and nonprofits should feel the exact same way. You should, everybody that works there should be totally bought in on the mission. And so when there's an open position or something, it should be the best way to do that is to, you're right, fill it from somebody that somebody knows. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you do, you end up, you may end up with a challenge with diversity there, right? Because people tend to know people that look like them. And so you might end up with, you might have to go a little bit farther afield to try to make sure that you're not just hiring the same guy over and over and over again. Of course. Well, no, I totally, yes. That's, that's assuming that you have some modicum of diversity already. And in this day and age, most organizations should. One would hope. (laughs) You would hope. Okay, so we've talked about folks that are coming out of jail. What other groups would you consider that we should be considering or or what other things should we be considering around other groups that are, are typically difficult to hire? So in this employment moment, just as an anecdote, last week I went in and spent about an hour with an attorney to say, are we eligible to hire people um, on an H-2B visa? Therefore, I was prepared to go in and say, how can I possibly, first of all, do I qualify as a staffing company? And now off I go to Honduras or Jamaica or someplace or sort of any place outside of this country. And I'm going to identify populations of people and pay for their transportation and pay for all this stuff up front and then bring them here so that they can work legally for my company. And all I could think of the whole time is how frustrated I was that I know for a fact that down the street, there are asylum seekers here in this country, legally here, who are not eligible to work because our system is so backed up and so broken that they have 12 to 18 months waiting period before they can even be considered, before their date for consideration for asylum paper, for work papers as an asylum seeker. So I think that that system is a call to action, that we have to go outside of the country to bring people in to fill jobs when there are people literally in this country already legally here on asylum seeking status or refugee status who are ineligible for work for lack of process for us to get them um, their their, um, work authorization papers. That's inhumane, in my opinion. You cannot bring people here and then expect them to either fuel the -the under-the-table labor market, which is what they end up having to do, or become trafficked as employees in the same way that women are trafficked, frankly. They're exploited, they're taken advantage of, and they're overworked illegally and underpaid massively. So 
that's my new frontier. Interesting. Who's so are there are there nonprofits or organizations that are working on that specific challenge that you're aware of? So if you look at the United States government right now, it's actually Congress that can fix this. And the level of infighting and protest and, you know, the minute you say anything related to new Americans, it sets off this whole um, political backlash. Right. Um, So that's where the answer lies. It has to be, it's a government, it's a federal government fix that has to pass that will say that we will shorten that time frame from 18 months or a year to a, you know, a more manageable three to six months. So, but without the will, like our elected officials are in Washington representing the views of their demographic. Let's just, let's just say that's what it's supposed to be, right? But if no one has the will to require addressing these issues, then we spend more time investing everybody who becomes a president, right? So they, that's like that's the fodder, as opposed to these really important issues, and that's that transcends both political parties. Everybody seems more interested in pointing fingers than getting work done. And yeah. to me, and we have a huge labor problem in this country. No one wants to work as hard as they used to, which is a foregone conclusion. And we're not allowed to talk to people who are here who already could be working but can't it's just ridiculous to me that's um that needs they need support they need employment direction they need language skills they need all this kind of stuff in order to become work ready and there's no will to do that i would love for one of your people listening to this to to have that become their call to arms call to order call to advocacy. Yeah, there, there's a fair chance. There's a fair, so if this is a space that you're working in, um, shoot us an email, let us know, and we'll, we'll see if we can get, get you on and talk to you about that too. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. Yeah. So, so you, one of the things that you talked about earlier is providing support to, to, to people that are working because that's one of the challenges, right? They may not have housing, they might have food, they don't have transportation. Like, so what does that look like? So if you were just a regular employer looking at hiring people on a nonprofit employer, like how far do you go to in, in investing in that workforce? I mean, it feels like that's, there's probably a financial risk in that. You don't want to invest in somebody that's going to wander off. Um, Every private employer will say the exact same thing because the turnover or ghosting even before start date for (laughs) private companies is shocking, actually. It it opens up a whole new landscape of what employment looks like these days. But in any case, we we calculate that cost per hire at MainWorks um, with the support of Main Recovery Fund to be on an average of $2,000 per individual that we hire. And... um, um, what, where we get that number basically is rent assistance for a month or so, which in many cities would already be the $2,000, but um, outerwear appropriate to whatever kind of seasonal work they're doing. And then transportation is the big one. So I kind of have accepted right up front that anyone that we hire at MainWorks is going to need some degree of um, support up to an average of $2,000 per, per person. So we fundraise for that because without it, they're dead in the water. Without it, they're tax burden. So I wish there was a will of some federal program that said, wow, we see what you're doing. 
we'd like to help offset that because we understand that without that, they're dead in the water. And, and they're big ones. It's where am I sleeping? It's, if you go back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you don't know where you're sleeping or what you're eating, you have no, you have no capability to aspire to anything. And if the cost of that is a paltry $1,500 or $1,000 just to get someone into a safe, like sober house or something, I think it's worth it. I think because saving lives is worth it, in my opinion. And these people have all identified as work ready. They show up at our door because they feel like they can hold a job. So why don't you do as much as you can to dignify that and, and engage them? And believe me, the cost, what we expend in those few dollars to upfront gets paid back in over time through, you know, um, loyalty and um, showing up and then they end up becoming leaders for the, and there's that, that threat of empathy. So people that we treat, treated with that kind of level of engagement and dignity will hand that to the next guy. And we see that all the time. It's really cool. That's amazing. That seems like a really good investment for $2,000. Without question. Think about it, you know, I would, I would do that. We don't go to any like events and, you know, we could be doing these boondoggle trips all year long and all this stuff as a private company. You can go to the conference in Vegas. We don't do any of that in favor of making people feel welcome and of value. That's pretty nonprofit-y. It really is. It really, it feels very nonprofit <laughs> Especially foregoing the, the meals entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's very nonprofit <laughs> Well, that's why you get into development. You get into development so that you can get all the meals and entertainment you want. Yes. So tell me about what does this look like in terms of retention? Like, so do you see better retention with your employees than, than a typical company working the normal way? Yes. We were set up as a staffing company with an expectation of having people become um, hired by one of our clients that pay us. That's how it works. We, we have a service, we provide labor support, and then our clients pay us for that. And in, in exchange for what they pay us, they get a great guy to work. And they also get, um, we, we offset the cost of their payroll, payroll expenses and workers' compensation, very importantly. So we were expecting that everybody would want to transfer to their our clients within three or six months and then off they go they've now got a job with one of these fantastic industrial construction companies with a future and a pension and all that kind of stuff but the paradox is that mainworks created such a nest safe place for them at that vulnerable time that that people don't want to leave mainworks <laughs> That's actually such a blessing and we're thrilled about that. And we could try to find jobs for people that like, um, they, or they can just stay working for different construction companies or the same one for a long time um, at the, you know, and we've arranged that with our clients directly. But I think the best way to um, value um, your impact is through retention. And if you have people that are sticking around and want to stick around and and the other side of that is you should be darn sure that you are doing what you can uh, financially and through benefits and time off and stuff for your high performers. So I'll, I'll kind of end with this. Um, 
we started doing something that an old boss of mine once said. He said, you should try to starve the turkeys and feed the eagles. Because if you end up feeding everybody, you end up pissing off the eagles and then you're managing to the middle. And so no one wants, it doesn't feel very motivating to to end up feeling like you're in this mediocre pile. So really be intentional about making sure the people that are really showing up and making a difference get paid differently than the people who are just calling it in. I think that's a fantastic way to end. Margo, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank this was you. Absolutely wonderful. We're going to get put contact information for MainWorks in the show notes so that people can, number one, the photography on your website is absolutely astounding. It is. So I would recommend if you want to see some amazing black and white photography, your website is great. <laughs> I just say a quick note about that. Yeah. My dear friend, Joanne Arnold, who is a photographer who never took pictures of people. She was a landscape photographer. She jumped in my truck in 2016. And I talk about retention. She keeps coming and keeps taking those pictures. And we're so honored because her photography has amplified the hope, the struggles, and the possibility inherent in people who were would have other been literally overlooked. And for her to actually shine a light, Joanne Arnold photography, she is phenomenal. And uh, she doesn't get enough credit and she's self-effacing. So I hope that someone might take interest and take a look at Joanne Arnold photography. Thank you for saying that, Andrew. Absolutely. Yeah, it was, it was, it's, it's stunning. It's really, really good. And it's usually like you say, Hey, go check out the show notes and no one ever does because they figure they've gotten enough information from the podcast, but here's a reason to actually go click that. Thank you. She'll be thrilled. Well, thanks for listening. We really appreciate that you've taken the time to join Stacy and I today to talk about nonprofit stuff. Uh, we will be back in two weeks with yet another episode of Nonprofit Everything. In the meantime, send us questions. Uh, I think I've still got some stickers left. If you want a sticker, uh, send us a question with your uh, mailing address or or just send us your mailing address and we'll send you a sticker. We're not picky. So go ahead and do that and you can get a Nonprofit Everything sticker. And with that, we will see you in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm.